All right, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, I know this is like the last presentation of the day today. It's, um, some of you are probably really hungry and probably want to get out of here and eat. And I've been known to talk for longer than my one hour slotted time. So I'm going to try to try to make sure we uh, end on time today, uh, leave enough time for question and answer. And um, hopefully you'll get something really impactful from this. So um, just as a background, so obviously we're going to be talking about counterfeit medicine. What does counterfeit medicine mean? I'm talking about both medications as well as the, the actual service, the actual delivery of medical care. And we're going to dive into both topics today. Um, just to give you a, a sort of a background um, on, um, on this topic, I have nothing to disclose, but to give you a background on this topic or why I even got interested in this topic. So um, back in 1999, I was still in medical school and I was doing my away rotations and I really, really, really wanted to work at the World Health Organization for my whole life. Don't ask me why, I just did. I just, I just was very fascinated by the institution. I just thought it was really cool. I think as a kid I heard world health. I'm like, wow, there's nothing bigger than that. And, and it, I really wanted to, to experience it. And, and uh, that also, and I think Switzerland's like really beautiful. So, um, so I set up a, um, an away rotation, an externship, sort of the first of its kind um, for an American medical student in their Department of Substance Abuse. And one of the reasons I wanted to work there is because I've already become interested in pain management and uh, I've always been sort of this anti-substance abuse um, person. And uh, right about that time, I had been exposed to this new drug called OxyContin and I had some really bad vibes about it. And that was in med school, I had those bad vibes about it. So I said, hey, it's a great opportunity to work there. Anyway, long story short, while I was there, one of the WHO's big initiatives was on counterfeit medicine. So that's that's really where I became exposed to how big of a global problem this is. And that was 20 years ago. And I can tell you, honestly, in 20 years, um, I, I don't see much progress, at least in America. So, uh, so we created this CME, and uh, you know, thanks to Pain Week, this has become actually the first accredited uh, you know, CME presentation um, surrounding counterfeit medicine, especially um, uh, uh, specific to pain management. And um, so I hope you get something out of this today. So what are we going to do today? One, define what does counterfeit mean. Um, sometimes that term, even, even amongst the experts, uh, they can't agree on the terminology. So we'll give you both sides of what I think it is, what the definition is, what uh, some of the um, other players in the industry think it means from a business standpoint. Describe the counterfeit market um, and counterfeit medications. Define counterfeit medical care. Demonstrate examples of counterfeit medical care. Review some of the major issues of counterfeit medicine. And then summarize solutions. So there actually are solutions that are here, that are already in the marketplace, that could be implemented today and, and you know, significantly eliminate this problem. Um, and many of these solutions, unfortunately, are not being implemented in the medical supply chain. So what is a counterfeit? Uh, there are many definitions of a counterfeit. One is an unauthorized copy. So something, you know, a replica that was not authorized by the original uh, manufacturer or the original source. Number two, something that doesn't conform to the original manufacturer's design, model, or performance standards. So what that could mean is um, something that was authorized, but it's not being produced as they promised that it was, it was supposed to be produced. Uh, not produced by the stated manufacturer or produced by an unauthorized contractor. So what that means is, uh, let's say there's a, for example, there's a generic medication on the market, right? And it has a certain brand name on there, and we all think we're going to get that brand name 
or that generic brand name. Um, and then that's subcontracted to another subcontractor, and then that end, ends up sometimes even getting subcontracted to a third or fourth party subcontractor. And no one along that whole supply chain actually knows what is in that tablet. Um, a uh, off-specification defective or used product sold as new, um, that's pretty self-explanatory. And um, it also, uh, and finally, has incorrect or false markings or documentation. Um, what these all, if you, if you look at all of these, um, they all scream out trademark violation too, right? So a trademark um, is something that uh, sort of gives you legal um, uh, authority or ownership over a certain brand or a certain product. And um, so a counter, counterfeit can be easily defined as someone who's violating that trademark, okay? Um, according to the FDA, the FDA has very specific definitions on, um, and, and the World Health Organization also have very specific definitions about what they believe a counterfeit is. So uh, according to the FDA, a counterfeit medication uh, is something that may be contaminated or contain the wrong or no active ingredients. They could have the right active ingredient, but at the wrong dose. The World Health Organization defines a counterfeit medication as something that's sub substandard, spurious, falsely labeled, falsified, and or counterfeit drug. Okay, and that was based on this year's definition by the World Health Organization. So counterfeiting of medications can apply both to brand name and generic medications. Uh, this is not a discussion about everyone should use brand name medications. This is a discussion trying to expose you to the fact that brand names can be counterfeited and generics can be counterfeited and are counterfeited uh, quite often. And we'll give you examples of those. So just to give you an overview of the counterfeit market in general, okay, so let's just take a, a broad overview just to sort of maybe scare you a little and, and, and show you that this is not limited to just medicine. Uh, about 7% of the goods that are traded on the global market are counterfeit. So that's, I mean, that's quite a bit, right? Um, over $1 trillion is lost per year due to counterfeiting and diversion. Approximately $3 billion is estimated to be spent in, in just 2014 on brand protection solutions. Um, that number is probably higher now, and you'll find that some of these numbers are not necessarily from 2017 or 2018, simply because nobody's really following up with these numbers on a daily basis, and the reason is that I mean, what, who's going to spend all that money following these numbers when, unfortunately, this, this problem continues, and it continues to be a very big problem. And finally, anti-counterfeiting uh, has a packaging market. So there's packaging that people use to try to prevent counterfeiting, and that market itself is $40 billion. Other industry statistics, again, this one's a few years old only because there are no newer reliable, accurate statistics. We find that auto parts, about $4 billion a year, and just in the U.S., we have counterfeit auto parts and about $12 billion globally. And I'm just going to ask, and I ask this all the time, what do you guys think is the most counterfeited auto part that is available at auto stores right now uh, that you could, you could buy right now, but you wouldn't know it's counterfeit? Just take a wild guess. Anyone? What's that? Windshield wipers. Windshield wipers. Uh, probably are, but that's not the right answer. I'm sure everything's probably counterfeited, but what's that? Oil filters, probably, but that's, that's also not the biggest counterfeited product. Tires? Uh, probably, but close, but not, not almost, almost, getting close. Brakes. Brake. Pads. There you go. Brake pads. Brake pads. So, like, here's the thing. When you buy a brake pad, has anyone ever seen a brake pad? 
Yeah, it just looks like this grayish, blackish thing, right? I mean, it, it doesn't have, you know, you don't know. I mean, it just looks like this thing, and it looks kind of, you know, weird. Um, you don't know if it's real. You don't know if it's fake. You don't know if it's made to the specifications they're supposed to be made to. And here's the big problem. What is the most important part of your car? It's your, your brakes. Your brakes and your tires, really, right? Um, those are the most important parts. Why are they the most important part? Because it's really hard to get into an accident when you're stopped. It's much harder to get into an accident when you're moving. So, you know, it's not your accelerator, it's not your engine, it's your, it's your brakes. And so, think about that. If we have a counterfeit brake pad and now you're stopping 10 or 20 feet slower than you're supposed to, what do you think is going to happen to your car with, you know, hit a wall uh, and you go 10 feet past that wall? What do you think is going to happen when, when, if you had the right brake pads, you could have, you know, potentially stopped? So, so, you know, you think about that, and then you start saying to yourself, wow, I wonder how many car accidents could have been prevented, right, if we had um, brake pads that actually worked the way they were supposed to. Food for thought. Um, scary food for thought, really. And um, uh, electrical parts, about $15 billion a year in electro electrical parts are counterfeited. We're the second largest counterfeit market is electrical parts. Personal care products, about $4 billion a year uh, of personal care products. And... Um, uh, you know, you know you, if you keep up with the Kardashians, which I'm sure all of you do, because it's very intellectually stimulating. Um, <laughs> what's her name? I don't know, one of the Kardashians. I forgot which one. They're hard to keep up with. Um, uh, you know, keeping up with the constant Twitter feeds, it's too much for me. But one of them has like a lipstick line, and that is, uh, I think it's is it Kylie or whatever. Uh, she's worth like a billion dollars now. But she has, a, she has a lipstick line, and that has actually been in the news because it's been heavily counterfeited. And she's been very vocal about that. Um, pharmaceuticals. So pharmaceutical counterfeiting is about $430 billion a year. Not million, but billion. So half a trillion dollars almost in counterfeit pharmaceutical sales. The estimated amount of counterfeiting in America is somewhere between 100 to $200 billion a year for pharmaceuticals. So medications, right? So if you think that for a minute that this is a small market, just think about that. I mean, your largest brand name medications don't even come close to that, okay? Uh, medical device, about 8% of the medical device market is counterfeit. Um, aerospace, over 500,000 parts are counterfeit in our aerospace and defense. That means some of the circuits that exist in our tanks and our fighter planes are actually counterfeit. I don't need to tell you what can happen when you're flying Mach 2 and your, you know, capacitor blows and... Um, I don't know, you know, who knows what will happen then, but it's kind of scary. Wines and spirits, about 5% of the uh, wine sold on the secondary market is counterfeit. So sometimes those bottles that you buy that are really expensive actually aren't the real thing. Um, but you won't necessarily know that because they look like the real thing. So why do people counterfeit? I mean, what, what, what's the reason they do this? Well, it's pretty obvious. There's a lot of money you can make. You know, if you, if you make something for a dollar and you send it, sell it for $500, um, that's a pretty decent profit margin. Uh, people, there's a demand for it, you know, for medications, like some of the lifestyle medications, like Viagra, for example, there's a demand for it. And uh, people want these products, and they want it cheaper. And, uh, you know, we, we're all guilty of that. We'll, we'll see something, we'll say, hey, this is only $10, and it was like $20 over here. We'll just buy the $10 one. It looks just like the same thing. Even when we know it's counterfeit, a lot of people will still take it because they'll say, you know what, how bad can it be? How much different can it be? And so they'll buy it. Um, equipment is widely available to counterfeit. It's, it's not that hard anymore to, to counterfeit uh, products. Distribution is also very easy, right? We've all heard of something called Amazon.com. 
90% uh, of the Apple products that were sold on Amazon.com as of last year, about, what was it, 2016, were counterfeit products. Did you know that? 90%, 9-0 of the Apple products on, on, on Amazon. If you don't believe me right now, just Google Apple Amazon counterfeit, and you'll see the articles right there. Um, patients are self-prescribing, right? People are going on the Internet. People are going wherever it's cheaper, and, um, and uh, you know, we can't control that. Weak legislation and weak enforcement, and we'll talk about some of those statistics in just a minute, but there's very, you know, there are very few uh, government officials who are sitting there cracking down on all of this, uh, um, uh, you know, counterfeit uh, uh, products. Organized crime has moved in, so at the end of the day, um, there's a lot of money to be made, and it's not just some, you know, rogue guy in his basement doing this. I mean, these are, these are huge businesses and huge organizations that are engaging in this, in this uh, behavior. And in relation to pain management, you know, the demand for proper pain management is much higher than the actual supply. And so, unfortunately, we see um, some providers taking advantage of that, and, and some of those people have been in the news. Uh, so whose problem is it? Well, it's all of our problems, obviously. I mean, it's the government's problem, it's the police's problem, it's the drug squads, the customs agents, um, it's the regulatory bodies, it's the pharmaceutical companies, right? Because their, their reputation is being damaged. You know, when we see some of these deaths, are they really dying because the patient didn't behave or the physician didn't behave, or was it a counterfeit medication? So uh, that affects physicians, it affects uh, pharmacists, it affects the patients, uh, it affects all of us. So what I've done is I've actually created five categories. Okay, these are five categories that I've split counterfeit products into. Um, and it goes, I think it goes a one step farther than the World Health Organization or the, or the, or the FDA um, because they've just defined a counterfeit product, something that doesn't work. But we have to really subdivide that because what we have is we have uh, legitimate brand name medications, we have legitimate generic medications, and then we have counterfeited brand name medications, we have substandard or counterfeited yet legal generics, and then we have illegal generics. <clears throat> Number four, by the way, uh, the substandard or counterfeited yet legal generics, that is actually what most patients are receiving um, at, at your legitimate pharmacies, and we had this actually happen literally yesterday. Uh, so I'll get into, I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute, but just yesterday we, we experienced this. So. Uh, legitimate brand name and legitimate generics contain exactly what they're supposed to contain. Um, they, they, they are what you think they're supposed to be, right? The brand name is exactly like what they studied in their studies to get FDA approval, and the generic is an exact replica of that brand name medication. Um, counterfeit brand names, uh, you know, there are counterfeit brand names, right? Uh, we've seen that. They're replicas. We'll show you pictures of that. Uh, counterfeit generics... Uh, can be made by uh, legitimate manufacturers or illegitimate manufacturers. So these counterfeit legal generics are effectively products that are, are, are FDA approved. They are products that the FDA has set standards on that they say are okay. So the FDA actually has some very specific wording. And in that wording, it, does, it specifically doesn't uh, force the generic manufacturers to include exactly the same fillers at the exactly the same concentration made in exactly the same format as the brand name. So what does that do? That changes the property of that entire medication. Um, also, the bioequivalence can vary, and the FDA allows that. They allow for uh, between an 80 to 125 percent variance for the, brand, for the generic versus the brand name. Now, we all know what illegal counterfeits are, right? Those are the street drugs or the, you know, the heroin mixed with fentanyl and whatever. I mean, 
those are pretty obvious uh, things. But again, like I said before, number four is what you guys are going to experience often. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I said on a monthly or even a weekly basis someone is getting something that isn't exactly what you think they're getting. So this is a factory. This is a counterfeit manufacturing factory. Um, this is exactly not what a real legitimate factory looks like. The goal here is definitely not to produce a high quality product. The goal here is, you see this half empty Pepsi can here, and I mean, the goal here is to produce the cheapest product possible, which may or may not even have an active ingredient, or may have an active ingredient at a lower dose, may have some random fillers, it may have some, you know, some talcum or powder, it may have some drywall or gypsum in there. Really, seriously, yeah, really, uh, and it doesn't really matter, right? The goal is to get a tablet that looks like the real thing, get it on the market, um, and hopefully not kill the, the patient. So it's, it's in their best interest to create a product that's actually sub-therapeutic, not super-therapeutic. And creating something that's sub-therapeutic costs less. So everyone wins, right? Everyone on the bad side wins, at least. So some types of um, medicinal products that are affected by counterfeiting, which ones are, the, are most likely to be affected? Uh, the high volume products, the things that are prescribed very often, like your antibiotics tend to be one of the most counterfeited products. In fact, um, worldwide, the statistics are that 50% of the antibiotic supply chain worldwide is counterfeit. 50, 5, 0. And these are the real statistics, right? So next time your patient doesn't get better on their first round of antibiotics, you have to question a couple things. One, do they have a bacterial infection or viral? Number two, do you have the right antibiotic on, or, you know, or is it the wrong antibiotic and you need to switch? Or three, um, you know, are they resistance? But finally, did they even get a real antibiotic? Was it a subtherapeutic antibiotic? I would also say that next time someone's resistant, I wonder if they're resistant because you gave them a subtherapeutic dose of something, involuntarily, of course, and that's why they became resistant, right? You gave, them a, you gave the bacteria a chance to become resistant. Um, High-priced products, so things that cost a lot, obviously there's a lot of money to be made. Uh, known brands, lifestyle brands, we talked about that, things like Viagra, blockbuster drugs, right? A lot of uh, volume, a lot of money there. Um, uh, parental drugs, uh, especially in the developing world, um, all generics uh, are uh, really prime targets because, again, uh, there's, there, is, there is a little less um, control or oversight on the generics, especially when they're made off overseas. FDA really doesn't have jurisdiction very easily to those factories. Some of those factories they may visit once every 10 or 15 years. And, you know, they announce six months before when they're coming, so you know how that goes. Off-label uh, use drugs and drugs in short supply. So there's no such thing as a good counterfeit drug. I mean, if you're not the real thing, you're not good. At best, you know, you're, ho you're just hoping you don't get any major side effects. Uh, developing countries are definitely affected more, and uh, obviously because their supply chains are, are even weaker than, than ours, and their oversight is, is uh, less, less stringent than ours, um, even though our oversight still, still is um, not as tied up as, as we want it to be. Prices can vary globally, as you all know. Uh, you know, a lot of drugs are cheaper overseas. Um, some of them are legitimate, but many of them are not. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to sell a drug for a dollar overseas when it costs 10 cents to make it. And counterfeiting is, again, not just a brand issue. It could be a brand name medication. It could be a generic medication. Uh, so just keep that in mind. And so why are medicines a target? Uh, you know, we talked about this, right? It's relatively cheap to make. It's easy to make. The formulas are easy to make. The, the machines are readily available. The, the demand is there. And, um, and you don't really know. Like, you know, how many times do a patient come and they I say, hey, what pills are you taking? So I want to take a little white pill and I take a little yellow pill. 
You have no idea, right? So we don't even know. They'll say, hey, I take this, a little white pill. I don't know what that is. Whereas, say, a purse, right? Purses are counterfeited a lot. You know, sunglasses, watches, those are all counterfeited. Um, you can kind of tell what the real thing is supposed to look like. I mean, unless it's a really good counterfeit, uh, you know, you can kind of tell, hey, this looks like a knockoff. But with pills, a little white pill, you don't know if it's a knockoff. So that's why medicines are a target. Uh, we know about the Internet. Obviously, everyone knows that there are these uh, illegal pharmacies on the Internet. There are some legitimate ones, too. But again, um, how are you supposed to know what they're selling? How is anyone supposed to know what they're selling? Uh, we simply don't know. And, and oversight, right, if they're located anywhere in Canada, but really anywhere in the world, they're outside of that FDA jurisdiction. And, um, and so it's very hard to, to have oversight over those pharmacies. All right, so here's some pictures. These are recent, these are real pictures of counterfeit uh, drugs. So um, this is Viagra. And if you look on the left at the counterfeit, and you look on, um, uh, you know, right here at the counterfeit, and you look at the right, uh, right here on the genuine, right? You guys can see that. That's the counterfeit. That's the genuine. I actually think the counterfeit looks better than the generic, don't, or, or, than the uh, genuine, don't you? The counterfeit actually looks, you know, the sharper lines and everything, it looks better than the, the genuine one does. So again, how are you supposed to know? Because the counterfeits are made so well. There was a, I think it was um, 60 Minutes, and it was a few years ago, uh, where they went, uh, the, the chief of security for Pfizer went down to a counterfeit facility in, I think, South America. And, um, and, and he couldn't even tell the difference. And they needed an electron microscope to be able to tell the difference between the counterfeit and the generic. Uh, or, I'm sorry, and the genuine one. So same thing here. Here's the, the fake one. Here's the real one. I mean, you really can't tell which one is what. Um, here's another example. You know, Lipitor, big blockbuster drug. Um, you know, if someone brought this to your office, you're not going to be able to tell which is real, which is not. This is Watson 385, right? You know what Watson 385 is, right, Norco? <clears throat> yeah, you guys know that, right? So this is the actual picture of Watson 385. This is a counterfeit. This is the, the, these are the same counterfeits that affected um, um, you know, Sacramento a few years back where they had multiple deaths because of counterfeit Norco. This is the same thing that they found in Stein. So just so you know, uh, for clarification, Prince did not die of an overdose. He died of a counterfeit medication. He actually had Watson 385 tablets that contained zero acetaminophen and zero hydrocodone. It contained U47700, which is a banned substance in America. It contained fentanyl. It contained lidocaine and uh, I think one other product. But um, yeah, so he, he took it. I, I think, you know, really, as far as he knew, it was a Norco, and, and it looked like this. So kind of scary stuff, right? Here's some more pictures of a real and a fake. You know, can you guys tell the difference? I mean, again, these are blown up pictures, and they still look the same, right? This is, what, um, about a half a foot wide on this. In real life, it's, what, um, four millimeters big? So you can't tell the difference. Um, so... Um, so you had to be scared. You had to be aware. You have to be worried about it. Uh, there are five types of counterfeit medical categories. So it includes the utilization of counterfeit medications and equipment. Um, it also includes practicing outside of an individual's scope of practice. Um, it includes publishing or making false medical claims. Um, again, violating trademarks and false branding. So we've seen this now in the medical world uh, where uh, uh, physicians have uh, unfortunately um, 
taken advantage of this broad turn of pain management. If you went to my lecture earlier uh, this week, you saw that I, I show this slide a lot of you know, who provides pain management services. And then really, ultimately, it's every specialty in medicine sees patients who have pain, because again, the definition of pain is anything that's sensory or emotional that bothers you, right? Anything that, that, uh, that hurts. Um, so we all provide pain management. Um, and um, in addition to you know, physicians, um, there are many and multiple um, practitioners that are crucial in our pain management uh, uh, services. It includes chiropractors, CRNAs, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, physical therapists, massage therapists, acupuncturists, uh, holistic or homeopathic doctors, DME providers, and hospice and home health providers. And I was kindly reminded to include uh, um, pharmacists, which was uh, left out before. So pharmacists as well. There's a pharmacist here. I did that for you. Um, <laughs> So here, here are some pictures of some counterfeit uh, physicians. Okay, so this guy uh, was arrested. He's in jail, um, Farid Fata. He was an oncologist who diagnosed thousands of patients with cancer who had absolutely no cancer. Um, he gave them toxic doses of chemotherapeutic drugs. Um, a few, many people died. Uh, many of them are permanently maimed and disabled. Um, he, uh, they found, they know that he treated at least three, or about 3,000 patients. They think it's more than that, but they were able to identify three, about 3,000 patients that he misdiagnosed on purpose. Um, he, uh, what did he get? 45 years in prison. He got 45 years in prison, was ordered to uh, uh, pay tens of millions in restitution, which um, to my knowledge wasn't done. I think his family fled back to their home country. And, um, and so he's in jail. Family is got all, all the money back wherever they went. Uh, so uh, that was disappointing, right? So that's counterfeit medicine. That's counterfeit delivery. It makes all of oncology look bad. It makes all of medicine look bad. Um, there was also uh, many physicians who were um, engaged in this, in this uh, fake spinal parts scheme. So these surgeons, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, would buy known fake counterfeit hardware and implant it in patients. Now, why would they do that? Well, um, because they were paid to do that. I mean, they were paid by the manufacturer, you know, and uh, they obviously bought something that was very low in price, got paid, reimbursed, you know, whatever the reimbursement rate is. And the reason they found out about this is because patients had complications. Well, of course they would, right? I mean, these were counterfeit parts. They were not in any way should never have been implanted in people. Um, I, they weren't even made to the correct specification. So it wasn't even a trademark violation issue. These were just genuinely bad parts. Um, so there were 15 surgeons, 17 hospitals nationwide that were part of this scheme. Some of them unwilling participants, such as members of certain hospitals, um, but some of them, I'm sure, willing participants, at least the surgeons we know were willing participants, and many of them were, um, were um, absolutely uh, punished for it. Um, so here's a, uh, another case of a doctor who had to pay $2 million for dispensing foreign cancer so he, he knew he was buying cheap, generic, counterfeit drugs for chemotherapy off the Internet or wherever he was getting it from and um, uh, gave it to patients, obviously, uh, uh, you know, didn't give them the right products and made a lot of money off that. So he was also punished um, uh, for Medicare fraud. And uh, here's another doctor who um, uh, lied about giving foreign source Botox. So, again, counterfeit Botox. Um, thought he'd make some extra money off it, uh, was sentenced to prison and had to pay fines. So um, this continues, right? This, this absolutely continues. Um, 
if you come to my lecture next year, we'll talk about another case that's huge, um, uh, about another counterfeit uh, physician. Um, uh, that, that's a huge case, uh, pain management case. Um, most FDA cases are now closed, uh, or not, I'm sorry, most of the FDA cases that are now closed are relatively small in number. So we're looking at cases that are as low as about 250 per year. So this includes all those cases. This includes all of the, you know, false medications. This includes, um, you know, whatever, false brake pads, you know, everything. Um, and there are, there are a heck of a lot more than 250 cases because if you have a market that's exceeding a trillion dollars, right, globally, I mean, obviously you're going to have more than 250 cases. But the reason for that is because you just simply don't have the enforcement. Um, so the FDA is trying to just tackle, you know, food and drug issues. Uh, you have about 250, but you don't really have that many more cases that are closed for everything else that's out there. So how do we solve these problems? You know, so the title of this was Solutions to the Counterfeit Problem, the Counterfeit Epidemic. Um, without knowing what kind of problem we have, we, we don't know what kind of solutions we can have. So here are a few solutions that are real. They're present. They are absolutely implementable, implementable um, into the supply chain, into our industries today, if we wanted to. There's some, there are five basic principles that um, have to be met with any solution. So number one, the security strength. Is this solution strong enough? Because if it's weak, you'll just counterfeit the solution. So that doesn't make any sense, right? Ease of implementation. It has to be something that can be implemented easily. If it's something that's very hard to implement, no one's going to implement it. If it's something that's profoundly expensive, again, it becomes cost prohibitive. Authentication, speed, and simplicity. So let's say you have a solution. Um, how easy is it to authenticate? So for example, right now, and I've talked to like many pharmaceutical companies. There's one, they're like one of the biggest ones in the world. I talked to their chief security officer. I'm like, hey, why don't you, you know, apply, you know, there's certain technologies that I presented to him. Uh, in any case, um, he's like, oh, we got this all covered. We know exactly what we're doing. And you know what he said? He said, well, when we think there's a problem, we'll just, you know, take the pill, you know, and we'll send it to our lab and we'll crush it. And three weeks later, we'll have an answer. I'm like, Anyway, you know, when someone's that far gone, it's not even worth talking to them, right? How does that help that patient today who has that pill today? You know, so he was offering, he was saying, well, if we think there's a problem, just take a pill from the patient and then send it to us, and three weeks later, you will know if, you, if there's a problem. Well, during that three weeks, what's the patient supposed to do? Finish the bottle? Because I can't do an early refill, and I can't do that in every single script. So, I mean, the, the solution was just absolutely bonkers. And, uh, but that's the solution that they're using right now when they think there's a problem. Supply chain accountability, right? We have to have accountability within the supply chain, and the supply chain needs to be able to, again, verify those products in, in a fast and real time. And finally, total cost of ownership, with and without any solution. So if your product costs a dollar and your solution costs 50 cents, well, that's not going to work. You know, if your product costs $100 and your solution costs 50 cents or a dollar, that might actually work. So the technologies that are available include antibody pairs or DNA stranding, uh, barcodes, holograms, invisible and or, you know, um, or some type of security ink or some type of phosphor uh, marks, magnetic resonance uh, signatures, microprinting, RFID, serialization, tagants, and finally watermarks. You guys have heard of, I'm sure, a lot of these. There might be a few of them that you haven't heard of. Um, I would think maybe the antibody DNA pairs, um, maybe the MRI signatures, uh, and maybe RFID, and maybe tagants. But we'll go over all those real quickly. So antibody pairs, uh, they are what, exactly what you think they are. They're, they're antibody pairs or they're DNA strands. 
And uh, some of the advantages are that they're very complex, these unique codes, okay? They're very difficult to counterfeit. Uh, they can be embedded right into the product. They're organic. You know, these are real uh, antibody DNA pairs. And uh, they, can be, they, can, they can be validated through tools. Now, some of the disadvantages you can imagine, they're costly. These things aren't cheap to manufacture, and they're not cheap to deploy. Uh, very difficult and expensive to authenticate in real time, so on the consumer level. It's not like you guys can just authenticate uh, DNA strand by sitting there, right? And you need to have a sophisticated lab to verify this product. So this is one of the reasons this isn't used more often. Um, and if it is used, it's used on really high-end things uh, that you're not going to necessarily verify. So it might be on, like, you know, a $100,000 painting or something like that, um, but not on, you know, say, a, a $1,000 watch which is still expensive, but not expensive enough. Barcodes, you guys have seen these things, right? Barcodes are, they've been around forever. They've been around for, um, you know, decades. They're very cheap. They're very easy. They're readily available. Consumers can read them in, the real, in real time. They can be serialized. Even phones now can read them, right? Um, problem is they're super easy to counterfeit. You need to buy a printer. I mean, you know, it's pretty easy to counterfeit this stuff. Easy to hack. I mean, look, you, 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 here, there's the code. <laughs> It's pretty easy to hack. It's old technology. It's not covert. Everyone knows that it's right there. And, um, and it doesn't authenticate the item, right? So a million products could have this barcode. So it doesn't tell you anything um, if this is an authentic product or not. Holograms. So you guys have seen these things. Consumers can identify them in real time. You know, they're very useful. You can kind of just, you know, turn the product uh, to the light and you can kind of say, hey, this looks like a hologram. It must be real. Um, they're cheap to moderately priced. They're not that bad to, to produce. A lot of um, printers have this technology to be able to do this, like the professional printing places. Um, easy to apply to the package, and they're widely available. Now, some, are, some of the disadvantages. Again, easy to counterfeit, easily hackable. Okay, again, here is the code. The code for this is original, right, authentic. So all I have to do is get a printer, you know, not a, not a a printer, but like a printer as a company, a company printer, like a printing press type of people, and to say, hey guys, I really like this, you know, hologram. Can you guys make me, you know, 100,000 of these? Like, okay, sure, yeah, it's not a problem. Um, so a counterfeiter, you know, can very much do that. You guys might not do that, but a counterfeiter will definitely do that. Uh, they can be moderately priced, but again, if it's applied to a product of high value, you see these things. Have anyone here used Botox, right? Have seen a bottle of Botox? Yep. Yeah, so you've seen these, right? You've seen these holograms on there? So again, if, if you wanted to um, counterfeit Botox and say it was $1,000 a vial, you know, even if this was a couple bucks for a, a, a hologram, not a big deal at all, right? Um, it's not covert. Obviously, you can see it, right? Covert means very easily be, see, uh, you know, visible. Um, it doesn't authenticate a product, okay? So uh, again, this just tells us that, okay, this product is real, but it doesn't tell us that this specific product exactly what this product is. Therefore, it doesn't authenticate that specific product. And consumers can be easily fooled by the counterfeit hologram. Invisible inks. I remember seeing my first invisible ink. It was in a Captain Crunch box when I was like seven years old. And we could write it. Did you guys remember that? That was a good cereal. Um, <laughs> advantages of, co some of the advantages, covert. You know, when you write an invisible ink, you actually don't see it at all. You need to have a black light or some type of light that will shine, you know, the UV light at a very specific spectrum to be able to make that visible. It's harder to see as a result of that. Um, the price is on the lower end, right? I mean, I can't imagine that that invisible ink pen that I got in my Captain Crunch box was very expensive. So it's pretty, pretty cheap, and, and getting a blacklight or getting something to, to view it is actually also very cheap. 
And consumers can easily identify this in the field. You know, if you knew that's where you're supposed to look for, I mean, you could buy a black light from um, certain very select shops that are very readily available in Las Vegas. Some of you got that joke. <laughs> Disadvantages. Uh, it might be too covert for the average uh, consumer. So some of the average consumers don't actually know that they need to look for this, and they may miss it altogether. Maybe easy to duplicate. Again, it's invisible ink. I mean, let's say I wanted to write invisible ink. I mean, how easy is that to do, right? Um, so it's readily available to counterfeiters. It's readily duplicatable. And again, it does not authenticate that product. Anyone can write this, and you know whether it's real or not, and it doesn't authenticate that specific product. Magnetic resonance signatures. So some of the uh, advantages are very costly, right? Very difficult to uh, to, to counterfeit. Um, harder to impregnate into the product, and has a characteristic signature. So this is a MRI resonance signature of a twenty dollar bill. Okay, so kind of neat, right? Very neat. Now, uh, with a show of hand, how many of you guys have like an MRI machine at home? <laughs> so this is super costly, not only to implement, but also verify in the field. I mean, it's very hard to verify this in the field. Uh, to get these magnetic resonance signatures, not just the magnets and everything. I mean, you've got to be able to, to see these images. So obviously, it's, it's, this, is, this, is, uh, this is technology that, again, might be good for painting. So if we want to do like a magnetic resonance signature on like the Mona Lisa or something, great, right? But in the real world, uh, for usual stuff, this doesn't mean anything. So microprinting. We guys have seen microprinting. If you have a dollar bill or any type of money in your wallet, you can see the microprinting right now. You can see things like Franklin, right, on, um, uh, on your currency. You can even see some microprinting sometimes really down at the bottom in those little lines. You can see some microprinting. Sometimes we'll say United States of America and the really fine print. Um, so it's, it's great, right? Consumers can verify it in the field. Um, it's not necessarily that costly. You just have to have a printer that can print that kind of small printing. The problem is that a lot of printers have become very high quality. And again, these are not just the printing presses, actual printers, right? Print, you know, the machines have become very cheap. So, so machines that can print microprinting, it's not hard to find. Um, so it's easy to hack, it's older technology, it's not covert, and again, it doesn't authenticate that particular product. RFID, um, RFID is actually, uh, anyone, has anyone heard of the RFID? You know, we've heard of, yeah, okay, great. So yeah, we've heard of radio frequency ablation. If you guys are interventionalists, uh, you've heard of radio frequency ablation, and, and um, we use that all the time. So this is not that much different from a technological standpoint. We're using radio frequency, but in a way to identify a product now. Um, with this, something unique called tracking and tracing is actually possible. So we can actually track a product and trace that product through the supply chain using radio frequency ID tags. So you have a machine that can, uh, you know, um, uh, detect that signal and then verify that product. So the readers can be a hundred meters away, hundreds of meters away sometimes from that product and be able to verify that's the product and easily you know, link it, track it, trace it. Um, this is used right now. This is used in the supply chain right now, right? Um, your, your FedEx, your UPS guys, they, they can use this kind of stuff. Um, and that's where you see people like just scanning, you know, without actually touching, right? Those are RFID tags. Um, so they can be embedded. Some of these things are so small, they're smaller than a millimeter. They're like a, a pin, uh, you know, pin-sized um, uh, chip. And um, uh, you don't even know they're there. So in a way, they can be very, uh, uh, very overt, okay? Uh, or very covert, excuse me. They can be very covert. Uh, some of the disadvantages, they can be uh, costly. They can be hackable, okay? This is a technology. All technology can be hackable. You know, a good hacker can hack anything and definitely hack a microchip. Um, so they are counterfeitable, and um, 
Uh, they are widely available to counterfeiters. And again, they don't necessarily authenticate that particular product. Serialization, you guys have seen this, uh, sort of similar to barcodes, you have these serializations. So some of the, the reason it can be harder to duplicate is because each product now has a specific serial number. So different than a barcode in the sense that you have a barcode that has a very, one number, this has a serial, so it has a unique number for every single package. So in this way, consumers can then identify the serial numbers in real time, and the technology is readily available. Problems? Um, even though you can, you can see the serial number in real time, how do you even know that serial number is real? So you see a bunch of you know, numbers, right? So how do you know that's real? You don't. And that's one of the problems of serialization. It really doesn't still tell you that this is an authentic product. Um, it can be harder to duplicate, but not really. I mean, I can make you know, 100 of these serial numbers and spread them across the country. You're never going to know which one of these was real. Um, so it's not covert, right? Uh, everyone can see it. It's easy to counterfeit. It's easy to re replicate that just like a barcode. Tagins. Have you guys heard of tagins before? This one is usually the one that most people haven't heard of, um, unless you've been to my lecture before. But this is not something that um, is really in the consumer space. And on purpose, tagins uh, really are incredibly small particles. They're like the, the it's almost like a dust particle. Okay, they're smaller than this particle of sand. Um, some of them can be measured in in, the, in microns. Okay, they can be very small. So top shelf tagins are near impossible to counterfeit. Th these are this is a picture of an actual tagant. Okay, through a microscope. So I know it looks kind of like a cartoon image, but it's it's really not. These are actual tagins. Um, magnified like, I don't know, a thousandfold or something like that. Probably even more than that because it's blown up on, on the screen here. But what you see with these tagins, you see all these colors, right? All of these colors um, translate to a very specific hexadecimal conversion, right? The hexadecimal system is a six-digit uh, system with numbers and letters that uh, color codes colors. And with the hexadecimal system, you're able to get hundreds of billions of colors. So when you have hundreds of billions of colors, theoretically, in each layer, now you're looking at hundreds of billions of colors to, what, the fifth degree, fourth degree, um, et cetera. So you have almost a theoretical infinite amount of combinations because that's just one tagant. You could have five different tagants. So now you have those hundreds of billions times, you know, multiple fold times multiple different combinations. Um, so, so very hard to counterfeit, very hard to hack, very hard to make these particles. Uh, so they could be covert, they can be overt. You could put them in such a way where everyone knows they're there, and you could put them in such a way where nobody knows that they're there. Uh, some of them contain rare earth materials, so again, making it harder to, um, to counterfeit. Some of them can be very hard to see with the human eye, so unless you know they're there, you won't know they're there. Um, uh, in some cases, uh, the consumers can actually verify it in real time in the field with the proper devices. So a lot of advantages. Now, some of the disadvantages, they are moderately priced. Uh, you can't track and trace these. And um, the implementation of these, right, awareness of these is, is relatively low. And so until the demand becomes higher, people aren't going to be looking at tagins because the consumers don't even know that this technology exists. Watermarks, we've all seen watermarks. This an older technology, a cheaper technology, a readily available technology. And uh, those are some of the advantages. Now, some of the disadvantages, again, we can easily counterfeit watermarks, okay? Th those devices are very, very much available. It doesn't authenticate the product. It's not covert. And consumers are unaware if a real or a fake. Uh, which one? You know, which one's real and fake here? Do you guys know? I don't know. I don't know, because... 
because the real and fake thing got deleted here. So I don't even know which one's real or fake. <laughs> I forgot which one's real or fake. But I mean, that's how good it is, right? You really can't tell. Um, so what can you do? What can you do? Um, it's just like everything else. You know, this, this lecture is very pertinent to pain management um, for a lot of reasons that we've already discussed, but a lot of reasons in the sense that you're kind of battling the same battle within pain management and within counterfeit products. You're battling this battle of awareness, right? Within pain management, we're battling this battle saying, hey, you know, we want chronic pain to be more, uh, we want people to understand that this is a real disease. We want people to understand that, no, not every chronic pain patient is a drug addict. I mean, it's foolish to think that, and not every provider is a piece of crap. It's foolish to think that. And it's the same thing here. We need people to be aware that that I, I can guarantee you, you have prescribed counterfeits. I can guarantee it. So just yesterday, just yesterday, I get a, I get a text message from my office. Um, you know, obviously I'm here at Pain Week, and they're texting me saying, my patient um, is calling us, telling us that she's taking twice the amount of medication and it's doing nothing. And the pharmacy switched her medication to some other medic, you know, to, to the same medication, but some other manufacturer. It looks different. It, it's not working for her. And this is a patient who's been on the same dose, the same medication for, I don't know, years, 10 years, who knows. Um, obviously, we're not going to fail her early because that makes us, make us look bad. We can't, we can't justify what she's doing because it makes her look bad, right? Because in the, in the public eye, they're just going to say, oh, sh you know, she's the one with the problem. The reality is that she has a counterfeit medication, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So we told her to go back to the pharmacy, which was Walgreens, uh, and say, hey, you, know, you gave me a counterfeit medication. I want you to switch it. I don't know what's happened with that because that literally happened yesterday evening. So she probably went to the pharmacy today or maybe she'll go tomorrow. So it'll be interesting to see because I guarantee you the pharmacy is going to say, what in the world are you talking about? We're a great pharmacy. We're a huge pharmacy. We never do that. Well, you just did. So um, you guys need to be more aware of that. This happens all the time. So next time a patient comes in and say, hey, my medication is not working. Hey, I give you, you know, your, your um, um, uh, Synthroid or whatever and, and, and now your levels are all off. You know, maybe the Synthroid is not working. That's actually a big... Both Synthroid and anti-seizure medications are really counterfeited, as you guys know, right? I'm sure you guys know sometimes the generics don't work as well as a brand name because they're not actually the same thing. Um, ask the companies, ask various pharmaceutical companies, hey, what are you guys doing to, to authenticate your products? If you have real products, what are you actually doing to authenticate those products? Are you guys doing anything to authenticate those products? Um, ask the companies, you know, without a doubt, where do those products come from? Do you guys, how have you ensured the supply chain? Do you have any anti-counterfeiting technology? Um, demand that companies take more accountability. But it's not just companies, right? It's service providers. You know, it's, 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 it's your colleagues and everyone else, right? I think, I think we do have to be more aware of what's going on around us so we can at least um, uh, try, to, try to protect our patients but also protect your integrity and uh, the integrity of, of your patients. Um, so with that, um, I am all done. This is actually the uh, impact slide uh, that the World Health Organization put out many years ago, and they still have this as one of their um, many, many agendas. So any questions about anything? How do you battle? So the question is, how do you battle someone like a Walgreens? You know, you're going to go in there and say, hey, this medication doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Um, you're right. You're going to lose that battle. 
I, I mean, you are, and I am too. You, we all are until we all start saying it. If it's just one person saying it, then you know, it doesn't go very far, right? If we all sort of say, hey, this patient's been stable on this medication, and now it's the same exact dose, same exact you know, medication, right, or quote medication, and this patient's clearly not doing well, there is only one variable here, and that is the, the manufacturer, the lot, right? Different lots will, will be different. Um, and I think, I, think, I think it's very fair to start for all of us, right, to say, you know what, we demand you to switch this back to something else. I mean, you can do that everywhere else in the world, right? If you buy, even if you go to a restaurant here and the food doesn't taste good, how hard is it to say, hey, this tastes spoiled, can you give me a due dish? They'll be like, oh my gosh, of course. They wouldn't even argue, right? If you go somewhere and you, know, you, you buy a pair of shoes and it doesn't fit, I mean, even those you can return and exchange. Now here you buy a pill that could kill someone and you're telling them, dude, this thing is wrong. I, I, I personally think if they refuse to change it, then they're complicit in any side effects that happen and tell the patient to go file a lawsuit against them. Yeah, well, so exactly. So that's not the patient's fault. It's not your fault. Um, either give the patient the previous medication or take, this, take, take it back, give the patient their money back, and, and go somewhere else, right? Um, until more people start sort of saying, you know, sort of, right now what I'm seeing is, is you know, we just, we just say, oh, oh, well, well, we'll just wait till next month, right, until the next. And, um, and, and honestly, that's probably what's going to continue happening until more and more people start really, you know, forcing the pharmacist to, to have that conversation. And it's not even the pharmacist, right? It's, it's really it's the district managers, right? It's, it's, the, it's the business guy, the bean counters. It's not necessarily the pharmacist. It's the bean counters, and they're not allowing that. So, so then the pharmacist will hopefully also say, hey, guys, we're seeing a major problem here. Um, and, and they'll work with us. I, I, you know, we've seen the pharmacists are actually – so we've, we've talked to a lot of pharmacists who are like, I totally agree with you. Like, they'll say that. They'll say, I totally agree with you, but I can't do anything because my district manager won't let me do anything, you know? But uh, so then you have the patient write a letter to the Ultimately, ultimately, if there's more and more feedback, then, you know, then they're going to realize that they're, this is becoming a bigger, bigger, bigger problem. Do you think it's... Hi, thank you. Do you think it's more of a business model systemic problem with the system of distribution of manufacturer, distributor, wholesaler, and then to the pharmacy? Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's the pharmacy itself that's knowingly getting these products. And that's the whole problem, right? If it was, then it'd be a very easy problem. The, the whole supply chain has been uh, infiltrated. There was a case just a few years back uh, where FedEx was shipping, uh, had a shipment of $1.3 billion of counterfeit medication. The government tried to, um, or maybe it was 1.2, but either way, uh, the, the, far, the, the government tried to fine FedEx 1.2 billion for shipping counterfeit medications. And FedEx turned around and said, guys, we're just a shipper. We have no idea what we're shipping. You can't, we don't open these and test these or anything. Uh, so ultimately that case was dismissed. Um, and what, that, what we learned from that case is, you know, the shippers don't even know what the heck they're shipping and they don't even know where the supply chain is being infiltrated. So at the end of the day, just like if you're at home, at the end of the day, you get your package from Amazon or whatever, you just say, oh, look, it's got the tag, it's got the label, no one, uh, you know, messed with it. So you don't know, you don't know. Is that the question you're asking? Well, in, in a way, but uh, like when we do confirmatory drug tests for legal purposes, there has to be a, a chain of evidence, you know, documented. 
Right. And unless there's a chain of evidence from manufacturer to wholesaler, distributor, to local distributor, to pharmacist, any one of those in that line can be infiltrated by counterfeits. That's what I'm referring that, that's to. Exactly, yep, that's exactly right. And when you do your urine testing, you know, uh, let's just say they're on Norco and, and it says, uh, the urine test says whatever, 1,500. And what the heck does that mean? You know, maybe, that doesn't mean anything. And the whole point is, it may have Norco in there, but does it have Norco that's, you know, a 10 milligram Norco, but is working like a six milligram Norco? You see what I mean? Uh, you have a Norco that's maybe not um, being absorbed as well, or maybe it's not working as well, or maybe, maybe it only has eight milligrams to 10 milligrams, or whatever the case is, your urine drug screen will still say 1,500. So as far as you know, the patient's taking it as prescribed, and the medication is actually in that pill, but it may not be the right medication. And that's exactly what we, we know for a fact is happening with this patient. I've been seeing her for about 10 years, and we've never had an issue with her or her medications until literally yesterday. So there's, there's no other variable here except for that, right? I'm a pharmacist, and I agree exactly you know, the, the counterfeit supply chain that's out there. Um, but when you're saying just bring it back and swap it out, there's, there, there's going to be some issues with that. There's going to have to be some uh, acknowledgement and regulation change when it comes to controlled substances because especially with Schedule IIs, once it leaves the closed loop of the, uh, the, you know, the closed system and gets to the, the consumer, I can't take it I know, back. I know that. It's, a, yeah. it's illegal for it's me illegal. to keep back. Exactly. So it has to be, I can give the patient a mail back envelope and say, hey, you know, go ahead and trash it and send it into this, re this reverse distributor or whatever. But, you know, I can't take it back yep. and just swap it out. As a prescriber, you're going to have to be willing to write that second prescription because there's no regulation right now or any concept of, how to deal with these in the regulatory system. Yeah, exactly right, thank you. And, and that's exactly why you, you know, like I was saying, oh, I think he left. But um, like I was saying to him, yeah, exactly, we'll take it back. And, and then the pharmacist was like, I agree with you, but I can't do anything. And then so if you go up the chain to really the people who are actually making some of the, the, the rules within that pharmacy chain. Um, um, and it's a DE regulation, right. Right. Exactly, but what will hopefully happen is they'll be more cognizant about the suppliers that they're working with, and, and that's ultimately what we're hoping for. Um, uh, you know, it, and the only way they're going to know, like for for this lady, for example, we knew that they that sh they literally changed manufacturers. So hopefully, what will happen here is um, ultimately she's going to be out because I'm not going to write a script, right? And the pharmacy doesn't want to refill early, you know, because all of us are worried about that. So she's just going to have to suffer, unfortunately. Um, but, that, but that's fine, right? Uh, suffering doesn't kill, but counterfeits kill. Uh, so what, what's going to but what's going to hopefully happen is uh, the pharmacist will at least say, um, uh, "Hey, you, wow, this is this is bad. I'm going to report this and make sure we don't order from that manufacturer again." So that's a hope. That's a hope. Right. Hi. I found in the last few months is you get your bottle and it says distributed by. Right. Exactly. It came from India, it came from China, it came from Vietnam, yep. it came from the European, more and more. We don't even see that on the 
Yeah, so if, if just to say it out loud, uh, the, the, the comment was very, very true. Uh, right now in the bottles, it'll say, you know, it'll say distributed by, or whereas sometimes you'll even say manufactured by, but it's not necessarily manufactured by that company. Um, you know, like one of the ones we've seen a lot of is Mylan. Mylan has been outsourcing a ton of their stuff to other people who then sub-outsource it to other people. And so you have no clue what country it's made in, what factory it's made in, or anything. I mean, there's literally no sort of checks and balances across the system. And, um, and yeah, so you don't even know. And I don't even think that company that puts their name on it even knows. You know? So it's, it's, it's a problem. It's definitely a problem. So thank you for that comment. There's a uh, Drug Supply Chain Security Act being uh, passed by FDA and it's been in regulated. Yep. I think it's end of uh, 2013. Yep. All wholesalers have to follow that <clears throat> from the distributor to the pharmacy. We have to, I'm a pharmacist as well, we have to keep that report every day printed for the inspection. Mm -hmm. So it says where it came from, where it manufactured, who distributed, manufacturer's name, information, everything right. will be there. Yeah, so the, yeah, the, the, so the, yeah, exactly. It was like, it's called, also called the e-pedigree laws. Um, and, um, and those laws actually kept getting kicked down and down and down. And only, only recently, they were supposed to be completely implemented in 2013, but they weren't. Uh, they weren't, actually. They, the, a, lot of the, a lot of the core components in authentication kept getting kicked down and down and down to where now it's supposed to be 2019, I believe, that they're supposed to have all serialization of every single package. Um, but only, but even that, um, a lot of companies haven't even uh, done that yet. So, um, so you're right; they're supposed to have that. But here's the problem: the problem is um, uh, these these drugs are already legal. So that's the whole issue. They've they've already entered the supply chain because they they've entered as legal products. Just like you said, these are a lot of these are counterfeit products, but they are legal and they're not made to the specifications. So you could put all the serial numbers you want on there, but these products are still not you know, the true replications of the uh, brand name. Um, and so until, and so, so for, I think until we start authenticating the actual bottles or even the, the tablets, there's no way of knowing if those, uh, and, and you'd only authenticate products that you know are made to those specifications, you, you, you still won't know which product you're getting. But yeah, those are the e-pedigree laws, you're absolutely right. Yeah, technically then it'll go back to the distributor where, yeah. or the wholesaler where they're getting it from. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Actually, it was a good point. Sounds like there's almost, as you already said, more than one problem. But part of the problem is, um, it sounds like the regulations aren't there. To I mean, the FDA says you can have a generic product that's similar but not the same as the original brand name product. So, it's not apples for apples, you know, and. Um, it sounds like that's part of the problem. And then the other problem you're talking about is a product that doesn't even necessarily have what it claims to have in it. I mean, how much of one or how much of the other is it? Is it just they need to change the regulation and say you have to make exactly what you started with? Um, or is it there's stuff getting infiltrated into the system that isn't even what it says it is? It, well, so both. I mean, there was a uh, – if you look up Ranbaxy, um, it's one of, uh, one of many um, – uh, manufactured, but Ranbaxy was one of the biggest. It was one of the biggest suppliers for antibiotics worldwide. Um, a company out of India who, uh, back in the late 2000s, um, you know, was was effectively uh, was they were they were caught basically making antibiotics that have no antibiotics in there, um, and they also had maybe excessive levels of rat turd and stuff like that. So good stuff. 
Maybe it was the rat turd that killed all the bacteria. Who knows? <laughs> um, in any case, uh, uh, yeah, they were caught, but they weren't shut down. It was, it was a few years later that the FDA finally said, hey, we're stopping all shipments of Ranbaxy products to America. So guess what happens? Within, within a, a few months, uh, another company named Sun Pharmaceuticals buys them out, and the same products are hit the supply chain. It's just a game. Um, so the next time the FDA is probably going to investigate them, uh, you know, 10 years from now, who knows, 15 years from now. Uh, maybe their products are real, maybe they're not. I don't know. Who knows, right? That's a, there's the one problem where, yeah, you still have companies, big companies, who have made products that don't have anything in there. Then on the other end, um, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if the FDA passed something that specifically said, um, you know, they have to be exact replicas, like within a 2% variance, which are what brand names have to adhere to. Um, you know, if they say, hey, we are this, right, in our studies, there's like a 2% variance on either end, or I believe it's 2 or 4% on either end. It's it's eighty to one twenty-five, and yeah, that's right. And um, and the other issue is um, so even if that went to a four percent variance, but if you don't have the filler, right? The filler is everything. I mean, the filler is everything, right? If you if you um, if you take if you take ten milligrams and you put it in a ball of, of cement, <laughs> you know, is that going to be absorbed, right? You, you know, you know, you get my point here, which is which is the filler affects absorption, right? The filler affects your pharmacodynamic curves. Right? We, we've seen that with some of these, you know, you've, I'm sure you've seen these extended release technologies, right? What is that? It's the same molecule with different fillers and different technologies that allow a specific pharmacokinetic curve. The same is true with any filler. So, um, so it goes beyond just um, a, a percentage of what they think the bioequivalence is. It goes to, are we preparing it the same way? Because it really should be prepared. If it's prepared the same way, we shouldn't have a big variance. And then we, and some, and a lot of generics do that, but we just don't know which ones. And and that's why we're, it's, it's it's buyer beware, right? And so, um, so until there, until those products are all authenticated, which um, I don't foresee in the near future, um, it becomes more of an awareness issue and more of a uh, sort of standing up issue and kind of saying, hey, maybe the FDA should redo their rules, which I don't think they're going to because that that's really there's, there's more money to be made not changing those rules than to be made changing those rules. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't think those rules are going to be changed anytime soon. Um, so at that point, then you just sort of say, hey, guys, you know, they're, they're, this is a real issue, and uh, just be aware of it. Make sure your patients are aware of it. Um, when things don't work, uh, there might be a reason why. So at least, so what we have done, um, at least for, like for prior authorizations, so let's say we prescribe something and, and, it, and you know, we find problems with it, we've used that as a reason to change it to maybe a brand name medication or something that we at least know exactly how it's going to work. And we've gotten authorization, actually, in, in many situations. So. Any other questions? Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.